Well, Levittown Baptist Church, I am Christopher Ortiz, and I truly count it a joy to be here in worship with you all this evening. And on behalf of Grace Baptist Church, uh, hola, saludos, greetings. As Pastor uh, Caleb mentioned, I preach in English and Spanish every Sunday, so if all of a sudden I empiezo a hablar español and you get confused, it's I'm confused, but we'll get through it. Um, sometimes seems it's cross, but, but tonight's in English, so I'll stick to English. Um, but, but no, seriously, uh, Pastor Caleb has mentioned to me on multiple occasions how you all pray for us, how you've prayed for our church, um, and, and we're extremely thankful for that. And I have shared with our church how Levittown Baptist Church prays for Grace Baptist Church and how they want to encourage us in the Lord and our people feel loved by you all already. And so for me, it really is a blessing to be here and, and love you back by preaching the Word of God to you. And, and I also just want to thank you on multiple occasions. You have sent Jonathan Rodriguez to our church, and he's filled our pulpit, and, and he's a gift. He's a blessing. I, I'm a solo pastor. I desperately want a plurality of elders at some point, but, but until then, it's just me, and so having someone who can come and preach in Spanish and English is an immense gift. So thank you for sharing some of your blessed members to come and encourage us there at Grace. It, it means a lot. So with that said, let's get to the preaching of God's Word. Amen? Tonight... I'm going to go ahead and preach to you from Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, through Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. My goal is for us to be out of here by 10 p.m. <laughs> no, for those of you who are familiar, right, this is the passage of when uh, Israel crosses the Jordan. They cross the Jordan River and get into, get into the promised land. And, and because this is a lot of text, this is, of course, going to be more of an overview kind of sermon. And because of the amount of text in this passage for the public reading of God's word, I'm only going to read from chapter 3. I believe chapter 3 really anchors this section. And so I will read chapter 3. I will, I will read all of chapter 3 for us. I will pray and then we'll dive in. So again, this is Joshua chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The message will cover through chapter 5, verse 12, but I'm going to read chapter 3 for us this evening. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, 
Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabath, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. If you allow me, let me pray one more time for the preaching of God's word this evening. Heavenly Fathers, we continue in your presence this evening. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the grace and mercy and love you show us through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the songs we're able to sing to you. We thank you for the testimony that we've heard and how you can show grace and comfort in the midst of such difficulty. And and fathers, we continue to worship you now. We pray, would you use the preaching of your word to edify and encourage and build up your people? And Lord, I, I ask, would it be your spirit in me and through me for the good of your people and the glory of your name? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, I got to say, I think it's amazing the kind of things that we can forget. We might love someone. They may be really important to us. We might count them as a dear friend, and we still forget their birthday. Or, Or we forget anniversaries. We even forget important moments and events in our own lives. Not even stuff revolving around other people, but stuff that's happened to us. So, so not that long ago, I don't remember what, I think, I don't know if it was an ad I saw online or some commercial or something, but I saw something that, that had to do with California. And so in that moment, I thought to myself, man, I'd really love to go and visit California, go out to the West Coast. And it took me a moment to remember I had been there already. I had visited California. And, and, and I'm it's like coming back to me really slowly. And, and, and then I remember, oh, in 2020, February 2020, we went out to the San Francisco Bay Area. We went to a friend's wedding. And we actually had a great time. And we got to see the Redwoods. And, and it was glorious. Christopher, you did go to California. And you had an awesome time with your family. And, and it was a sweet time filled with joy and, and, and gratitude. And, and as I'm like processing all of this, I understood a little better why people journal. Right? Why people keep a lot of pictures up in their homes. I understand that better now because the reality is, no matter how fun or how impactful or how meaningful a moment in our life is, if we aren't intentional 
And keeping those moments, those memories in our hearts and in our minds, if we aren't intentional in keeping them before ourselves or, or sharing them with others, we are very capable of forgetting them. Not just that they happened, but we can even forget how they encouraged us, how they affected us and how they moved our hearts. And in our passage this evening, we read about an amazing moment in time. We read about an amazing miracle performed by the Lord. The moment when he stopped the Jordan River so Israel can enter the promised land. And you would think this is something the Israelites would never forget. They would never forget this. How would anyone forget an experience like this? And yet, after it happens, we see that the Lord instructs them to take steps to make sure they would always remember what he had done. He wanted that moment in the history of his people to always be a source of encouragement to them. And, and so my prayer for us this evening, my hope is that as we work through this passage, we would be encouraged as we remember all we have witnessed God do in our own lives. And that this would not only be for our encouragement, but also for the good and encouragement and edifications of others as well. And, and so if you've ever read Joshua chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 12, this, this section of scripture can be a little hard to follow. And, and it's because it's not written in strict chronological order. Um, that is why, for example, we read about Israel passing through the Jordan River in 317. But when you get to chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, they're still walking through the, the Jordan River. We read about the ark entering the Jordan in chapter 3, verse 15. But then in chapter 4, verse 18, it's still there. It hasn't come out of the water yet. And so the goal of the author wasn't to give a specific order of events, but to emphasize the miracle that Israel witnessed and the important truths that they were supposed to remember. So what did they witness? And what truths were they supposed to remember? And Lord willing, that's what we're going to look at tonight. We'll look at it in three parts. And here's the first thing that, that we see here that I would like us to see. Point number one, God's people witnessed his presence and his power. God's people witnessed his presence and his power. So in chapter 3, verse 1, we read that the day after the spies returned from Jericho, Joshua and the people moved closer to the Jordan River and they begin to make preparations to pass on over. And something that's made very clear in verses 3 and 4, is that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to go first. It was supposed to go before the people. And so the Ark of the Covenant, for those of you who, who, who remember this, those of you who may not, it was a box covered in gold, and inside was the, the tablets holding the Ten Commandments. Also in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff, and there was a golden urn holding bread, holding manna that had fallen from heaven. And normally, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the most holy place in the tabernacle. And the reason it was kept there was because it represented something very important. Do you remember? What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? It represented the presence of God. And of course, God wasn't like in a box, right? No, it's, it's not literal, but, but his, it represented his presence in a very real and tangible way. And so that was supposed to go before the people, and the people were instructed to stay 2,000 cubits behind the priest holding the ark. 2,000 cubits, that's about 1,000 yards 
or around 10 football fields away. That's a long distance. For those who had bad eyesight, they could probably barely see where it was. Where, where was it going? And why so far? Well, there's a very practical reason for this. We see it in verse 4. The people had never gone this way before. This was new territory for Israel. And so by going so far ahead of them, everyone would be able to see it and then follow it and know the way to go. And, and this is important because this was no doubt an exciting time for the people of God. But I'm also confident it was a scary time for them. Yes, they were finally going into the promised land, but they also knew they were going to war. They knew once they entered, they, were, they would encounter battles. And so by instructing them to keep their eyes on the ark and to follow it, God was giving them a visual reminder of his presence. He was with them, and he was leading them. They didn't know the way to go. They didn't know the details of what was waiting for them once they got on the other side of the river. But one thing they could be certain of was that the Lord was with them, and he was guiding their every step. They were not entering the land on their own. They weren't going to fight those battles on their own. The Lord was present, and he was going before them. Now, we see here in chapter 3 and 4 that the people of Israel not only witness God's presence, they also witness his power. The author slowly builds up to the miracle of, of the crossing in verses 14 through 18. And when you think he's finally going to get to it, he's finally going to describe it, he, he pumps the brakes and he pauses once more. If you look at verse 15, he, he's going and he's explaining what's going to happen, and then he inserts a parenthesis. And he does this to further highlight God's power. And notice that parenthesis there in verse 15 of chapter 3. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks through the time of harvest. So normally, the Jordan River, from what I encountered in my studies, was about 10 feet deep and about 100 feet wide. However, during this time of, of harvest, the river was known to flood. And when it flooded, it was much wider and much deeper. And what is being described here then isn't just some small trickle of water. This was a raging river during flood season. Yet, when the feet of the priest holding the ark stepped into the water, we read in verse 16 the following. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. The city that is behind, beside Zarethan and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabath, the sea salt, the salt sea were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So the city of Adam was about 20 miles north of where the Israelites were. And so from the city of Adam all the way down to where they were, the Lord stopped the water from flowing. So this is a big thing. This is an amazing, large miracle. This is something massive that's occurring. People for miles are seeing this happen. And, and what's really amazing is not just that the water stopped, but two times we read here that the priest and all of Israel walked on dry ground. 
I mean, have you ever had a puddle in your yard? How long does it take before that puddle evaporates and then the ground is no longer muddy? It could take a long time. And yet where there once was a raging river, immediately it's now dry ground. They're able to walk through it, walk across it with no issues. The Lord did it in an instant. The only other time Israel had witnessed God's power like this was when the Lord parted the Red Sea 40 years before this time. And this comparison is actually made explicit in chapter 4, verse 23. And so the vast majority of this generation had never seen God's power in this way. They haven't witnessed this. And God in his grace was now allowing them to witness his power and his presence in this very supernatural and powerful way. And why? Why did he want them to witness his power and his presence like this? We see the answer in verses 10 and 11. The Lord did this so that they would know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. In other words, witnessing God's presence and witnessing his power in this miracle was meant to fill them with confidence and hope in their Lord. I've heard it said that men and women who serve in, in our military, though it's always unsettling to go into battle and, and to go into any type of conflict, that they always go in with a sense of confidence. And I've heard that this is the case because they have in the back of their minds, I serve the United States military, which is by far the most advanced technologically. Our military has capabilities that others don't have. We have someone in our corner that can really watch our back and, and can strike with precision from, from the sky. And so they have a sense of confidence knowing the, the resources behind them and who's behind them. Now, yes, somehow balloons can fly over our country for months and we don't realize it, but we still do have the most advanced military in the country. Well, imagine how encouraging it would have been for Israel to know before going to war that their God was with them and that their God was able to control nature itself. He could stop raging rivers for miles and allow his people to cross on dry ground. That would have been immensely encouraging to them, knowing that he is with them as they are about to embark in this new season in their life. And, and brothers and sisters, this should be encouraging to you and to me as well. Do you know why? Because our God hasn't changed. He's the same. He's just as powerful today as he was in this moment. And knowing that the Lord is with you and that he's able to work in history and nature and do things like this should fill you with a sense of confidence, not in yourself, but in the mighty God who is with you and who goes before you. Sure, our circumstances are different. No one here is going to war. I don't think anyone here is trying to conquer Westbury. I think that's the next town over, right? not crossing over the interstate to go conquer Westbury. No. But we still have battles, don't we? We struggle with discouragement. We struggle with health issues. 
We struggle with doubt. Some of you may struggle with anger. When I'm in traffic, I know I do. Maybe you struggle with fear, anxiety, or fear of man and what others think of you. Maybe it's pride and arrogance in your heart. Whatever that battle is, whatever that struggle is, if you are resting in Christ, your Lord, your God, your King is with you. And he is able to give you victory over it. Just as we see here. Now, I think it's possible for some believers who are here, those of you who are believers, at least some of you, I think it's possible to be thinking, Chris, I hear you. Yes and amen. And yes, as I read this, I see the power of God and I realize that the Lord is present with his people. But man, I really would like to see something like this with my own eyes. If I could witness that or something like that with my own eyes, then I think I'd be more more confident in trusting the Lord. Then I think it'd be easier for me to really rely on God and trust that he's with me and really trust in his power. Perhaps you think if you can only witness something like this, it'd be easier for you to trust the Lord. If that's you, if that's the case, and if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, I have really good news for you. You've witnessed something even more powerful than this. If your faith is in Christ, then you have seen with your own eyes how God is able to make someone who is spiritually dead a new creature and alive with him. You have witnessed with your own eyes how the Lord can give you, and only you know how wicked and deprived your heart was, how he can give you a new heart, how he can change your desires, how he gives you a love for his word and his church for his people, how he burdens your heart to now reach the lost and share the gospel, how he has changed your priorities so that now honoring Christ is is the center of your life. That's what you want your life to revolve around, just honoring and obeying and loving Jesus and his people. We see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so great that its power cannot be measured. There's no more powerful of a thing than how the Lord can take someone who is spiritually dead and make them alive together with Christ. So as a believer, if you want evidence of God's power, if you feel like you just need to see that, then brother, sister, just look in the mirror and thank the Lord for what he has done in you. Thank the Lord for how he has changed you. And then after you thank him, after you praise him for for loving you first, then by the grace of God, I want to encourage you, trust him. Trust him. Trust him to help you fight sin and to obey his word. Trust that he is powerful enough to change your circumstances or to comfort you and change you in the midst of your circumstances. We just heard our brother testify about this how his prayer changed over the course of time. His circumstances didn't change that much, but the Lord was working in him and giving him the grace to endure. He can do it for you. I'm sure he's done it for many of you already. Trust that the Lord is powerful enough to maybe save your spouse who you've been praying for for so long to save your children whom you've shared the gospel with faithfully and you love them and you pray for them, 
but you just don't see any fruit in their lives, trust that he can save them because he can. There's nothing too great for him to do. We serve a mighty and powerful God. Those family members who you desperately pray for and you want them to be family in Christ, not just relatives, right? The Lord can save them. I have them. I know you have them. Levytown Baptist Church, saints, we have a mighty God who works all things together for our good, for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Let this truth fill your heart with confidence and trust in him. And not just today, right? not just this moment as we're hearing this, but that this would happen in our lives daily, every day. We need to try and remember this every day. Why? Because if we don't, we are prone to forget. And that leads us to our second point this evening, point number two. What do we see here in this passage? We see that God wants his people to remember his presence and his power. They witnessed it, but we also see here he wants them to remember his presence and his power. Israel, they were entering a land where the people worshiped false idols, false gods. And because of that, there was going to be a constant temptation for them to worship these false idols as well. And, and anticipating this, the Lord wanted them to build something to help them remember him, to help them remember his presence with them and how he used his power for them, to remember that they serve the only one true God of the universe. And so in multiple places in chapter 4, we see the Lord commanded the people through Joshua to gather 12 stones, to gather 12 stones to make a memorial. Verses, in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, we read that Joshua, he set up 12 stones in the place where the priests were standing while Israel was crossing the Jordan. But then once they finished crossing the river, the Lord told Joshua, have 12 men, one from each tribe, go and grab one of those stones and have them carry it all the way to the city of Gilgal. And then place the stone there. That's where they were going to stay. And so they took those 12 stones. They carried them to Gilgal. as representative of all the people, one man from every tribe. And in Gilgal, they built this <laughs> memorial. What's the purpose of a memorial? To remember. To remember, right? We build it. It's there so that we would remember something that happened. And so the Lord instructed Israel to do this so that they would remember, so that they would never forget what he did for them on that day, so that they would never forget that he is with his people, that he went before them, that he is a powerful God, able to sustain them and care for them and protect them. And, and this is important. He also wanted them to remember so that they would continue to speak of it and share it with others. The 12 stones gathered together. Imagine, right? We're just, we all leave church tonight. We go down to the corner. We see 12 stones. Like, oh, okay, what is that? You've seen people, like now it's a new thing where they try to balance stones on each other. It's like a thing. Like we, what is, does that tell a story? No, what is, it's just 12 stones. We have no idea what it means. Well, here in Joshua chapter 4, verse 21 through 24, we see how this is supposed to work. It's to jog their memory. But once people see it, what's supposed to happen? I'll read it for us. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? 
then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As children saw those stones over the years and they asked their parents, what is that? Why are there 12 stones there? I don't get it. Was someone bored and trying to balance stones? No, son. This is something important. The parents were then commanded to remind them, to remind them of what God had done, what he did for them. I love how one pastor put it, right? Stories that aren't shared are stories that will one day be forgotten. But if we can remember them and we can tell those stories, they can last for generations. So, so here's a story that has lasted many years. We, actually, I can now say generations. When I was about five or six years old, I was in Bridgeport, Connecticut with my family. I was born in Brooklyn, but then we moved to Bridgeport and we had a big front yard there in Bridgeport. And I don't remember the occasion. Maybe it was a birthday party or, or it was some type of family gathering. But all my cousins, my aunts, my uncles were there. My mom, my brother, my stepdad was there. And we're in the front yard and we're playing baseball. And again, I'm like five, six years old. So we're playing baseball. It's my turn to bat. And I step up. The ball comes and I connect. I mean, I ripped it. Now, I was five or six, so maybe I hit it like 10 feet. But in my mind, I just slammed that thing. And so I'm running to first base, and I'm running hard. And then when I step on first base and I turn towards second, my cousins and my aunts and my uncles, they, they start yelling, run home, Chris, run home. So I'm running hard. And I get to second. And then I hear all the more, run home, run home, run home. Okay, I'm young. Everyone's yelling at me to run home. I'm starting to get nervous, like, did I do something wrong? So as I'm approaching third, it gets louder. Run home, run home. So I step on third base, and then I run straight into the front door of my house, all the way back into the kitchen, which was at the back of the house. And when I get to the kitchen, I like stop running. And, and I, I remember this vividly. And I'm like, out of breath because I ran hard. I ran home. I hear all my family out front just laughing so hard. They're just, you know, that deep belly, <laughs> belly laugh. They're just having a ball laughing out there. And I walk out sheepishly and they're like keeled over laughing. I ran home. That's what I did. You have no idea how many times I wish that story would be forgotten. And do you know why this story has not been forgotten? Not because I'm telling you now, though I'm not helping the cause. Because my mother, for years, just felt the need to share this story with my friends. For years. I'd have someone come by the house and... Oh, you know that one time I got to tell you this story when we were playing baseball? I'm like, come on. 
She just thought it was the greatest thing to tell everyone how Chris ran home when we were playing baseball in Connecticut. I think we get the idea, though, right? This is how we make sure that stories and important events in our lives aren't forgotten. We don't just remember them. We have to share them with others. We have to continue to share them. This passage speaks of children asking their fathers, and so, if I may, just address the fathers and the husbands and the men, grandfathers here. Those of you who have children, are you remembering and then sharing the gospel in your home? Are you reading and rereading and sharing the glorious truths and stories of Scripture with your family and your children? Are you remembering it yourself? This is only by the grace of God we got to wallow in it. But then are you sharing this? And of course, mothers and sisters and brothers can do this as well. But, but as heads of our homes, men, we must take responsibility for this. This is on us. It's a wonderful thing when a church can have ministry for children and for youth. Praise the Lord. Those are great and good things. But I think we would all would agree we should never completely depend on ministries in the church to disciple our children. Men, fathers, it is on you and me to disciple our children. And the way we do that is by reminding them and pointing them to the word of God and to our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. It is on us as, as fathers to train our children and to remind them of the power that can be found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and to be vulnerable about, vulnerable about this. I, I, we have a brother at our church, and I was so encouraged. He asked for prayer. Just one night, he was vulnerable, and he said, guys, just pray for me that I would lead my home and my family better. Pray that I would be faithful in shepherding them and reading scripture and praying with them. And I said, amen, brother. We all can use prayer in that, all the men. And so let us continue to pray. I want to encourage you. Let us pray together and pray for our church. We'll pray for you that the Lord would help us grow in this and encourage one another in this, to be faithful and not just remembering and rejoicing, but in sharing and starting in our own homes. And I know the children were excused and they yelled freedom as they left, which was adorable. But those of you who are young and you still live at home, you're still under the authority of, their, of your parents and you're hearing me, do you know what your role in this is? To listen. Listen. Be humble. Be teachable. And listen. Thank God for parents who love him and love you. Having parents or even a parent who loves the Lord and who's sharing the truth and beauty of the gospel with you in the home is a gift and a blessing. Thank the Lord for it. And then listen to them as they try to share the good news of the gospel and as they share truths from Scripture with you. Listen. That's your role in this. Listen attentively. Now, though we are to disciple our families and one another in the church, it's not supposed to stop there either. It's where it starts. It's not where it ends. If we look again at Chapter 4, verse 24, if you notice, the Lord performed this miracle not just for Israel, but what does it go on to say? 
so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Through Israel, the nations were to also learn about the power of God. We've seen chapter 5, verse 1, that when the nations heard about what God did for Israel, it says that their hearts melted. But if you look at Joshua chapter 2, we know it can also go in a different direction. Joshua chapter 2, we read about the story of Rahab. And what do we read about there? We read about how a prostitute, this Gentile prostitute and her family, can actually be forgiven and saved and made part of the people of God after hearing about and witnessing the power of God. And that's always the goal. That's always the mission, that the nations, as we seek to disciple one another and disciple our families, that through that the nations might come to know, might come to repent, and might believe. This mission hasn't changed. As the New Testament people of God, this is our mission. Parents, as we disciple our children, and, and I try to remember this myself and, and, and keep this in mind, as we disciple our children, we are to do so with the hope that, yes, they would repent and believe, but that they would also become men and women who can one day disciple others, that they would grow in the knowledge of the Lord and grow in love for the Lord, that, that they don't just know him, but that they want to share him. In fact, every time... Every time you meet with someone, a brother or sister, you go out for coffee and you just want to encourage one another. You're gathering over breakfast or lunch or dinner, whatever it may be. As you go to encourage one another or share scripture or hold each other accountable, whatever that looks like, let us pray, Lord, that we would both leave encouraged to share this with others. That we would be encouraged to, to keep speaking about your goodness and your power and how you can work mightily in anyone's life and in any situation. And so it's good. It's good for us to stop and ask ourselves occasionally, how am I trying to do this? Who am I praying for that they might know, come to know the Lord? Who am I seeking to be intentional and spending time with? Not just so that I can encourage them and they can encourage me, so, but so that we can encourage each other to, also, to disciple those who can then disciple others. How am I doing this? What does this look like in my life? How are you doing this? It's a good question to stop and ask yourself and think through. And if nothing comes to mind, I'm sure there are opportunities in the church. Pastor Caleb, I, what can I do? Put me to work, brother. Who can I encourage? And, I, and I'm sure he'll be ready to roll. But this is our calling. This is the Great Commission, is it not? It is that the nations might know, that they might come to believe. Now, before moving on to the last point, I, I do just want to say something about memorials. I think there's an application here. I think it's a good thing if we have in our homes stuff that reminds us about the grace of God, that it reminds us of, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Maybe this means having scripture on your walls. Artwork. Maybe it's just having a background on your phone that reminds you of, of your favorite verse or it's just the verse right there. Whatever that looks like. Maybe it's some, time of some kind of bracelet or maybe it's a charm and a cross. And I'm not talking like weird, you idolize it and pray to it. That's silly. But these things can be actually be helpful in reminding us of the Lord. They can be things that as we see them, it jogs our memory. 
Memorials are good. They're useful. And we know this because the Lord gave the church a memorial to remember him by. Do you know what it is? The Lord's Supper. Communion, right? This is a good thing. It is a good practice to stop and remember, to put things in our home and in our lives, to trigger our, our memories and, and remind us of the good news of the gospel. And the Lord has given this to his church. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus made it clear, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord gave his church the ordinance of the Lord's Supper so that every time we take it, we can remember how Jesus gave his life so that we can be forgiven and saved. In our church, we take communion once a month. And honestly, I'd be okay if we did it more often. Because the reality is, and I think you'd agree with me, how often do you remember the gospel? Daily. Daily. We can't take it too, too often, in my opinion. It is good for our souls to remember that Jesus, the Son of God, he paid the price for our sins on the cross. He lived a life of perfect obedience. Didn't sin once, and yet on the cross he suffered the eternal wrath of God that I deserve, that you deserve. He satisfied the wrath of God so that all who repent and believe in him can be forgiven and saved. We need to remember that often. We need to remember what Christ has done for us daily. We need to remember and rejoice in the grace God has shown us in the gospel, brothers and sisters, as often as we can. And anything that will help trigger that, help us remember that is a good thing. And this leads us to our last point. Lastly, we see here that the Lord wants his people to remember how he continually shows them grace and provides for their needs. That's a mouthful. I'll say it again. The Lord wants his people to remember how he continually shows them grace and provides for their needs. In chapter 5, verses 2 to 10, the Lord commands Israel to be circumcised. Because according to verse 5 there in chapter 5, this generation hadn't been circumcised during their time in the wilderness. And, and I'm not sure why. It doesn't explicitly say why. It's kind of odd because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. But they hadn't been circumcised yet. But once they enter the land, this is the first thing they were to do. The Lord commands the men to be circumcised. And then after that, they celebrate the Passover. Both circumcision and the Passover would have reminded the people of God's grace and mercy to them. They were the covenant people of God whom he had redeemed out of Egypt. And during that first Passover, not one of the firstborn sons of Israel died because the Lord spared them through the blood of the lamb. Not because anything they had done. It was simply by the grace of God. And that grace would continue for them now that they're in the land of promise. They were still his people. He was still their God. He will continue to love them and care for them. This is why I believe he had them do that first thing upon entering the land. Remember the grace I have shown you. And this grace will continue. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you and I've called you to be a people for my own possession. But likewise, his provision for them would also continue. 
We see in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, that the day after the Passover, the manna God would send from heaven stopped falling. For 40 years, the Lord sustained them in the wilderness with manna from heaven. But from that moment forward, no more. Why not? What would he use to sustain them now moving forward? The fruit of the land. The promised land, which was so abundantly, it had everything they needed. And so he's now providing for them through the fruit of the land. And so that we know, I, I think we know, I, can, I think I could say this, that the Lord provides for us in times of need in many different ways. I have seen the Lord move people to buy others in the church groceries. And I've seen that happen in moments where they had no idea the need in the household and those groceries arrived at the perfect time. But it was just God working through his people so that they can care for others and it was his provision through them. I have seen brothers and sisters in the church cover bills for others because they're in a hard spot. Not because they're being unwise, just because of providence and life. And they just care for them. I've seen brothers and sisters gift cars to others in the church. So-and-so needs a car. There's a car. Praise God for all of that. He can move his people and, and, and really work these kind of miracles, I would say, through moving hearts of his people and, and using them to care for one another. He can use his church and he can just do it. He's God. He can just do it if he wants to. But that isn't the only way the Lord provides. Yes, he can use his church. Yes, he can provide miraculously like manna from heaven. But you know how else the Lord provides for us? By providing us with jobs. By giving us the ability and the health to work. Those things may not seem as miraculous or as amazing as manna from heaven, but that does not mean it is not our faithful Lord caring for us and providing for us. It is. It very much is. Providing his people with the fruit of the land was still very much God loving and providing for his people. In 1 Corinthians 4 Verse 7, the Apostle Paul, right, he asked a rhetorical question. What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer, nothing. Nothing. Everything we have, the clothes on our back, to the food in our homes, to our very lives, it all comes from the hand of our mighty, faithful, and gracious Lord. And so my prayer is that this passage would would move you, would move all of us to thank and praise the Lord for his grace and provision, especially as we remember how he has provided for our greatest need of all. Our greatest need by far is our need of salvation. It's our need of being forgiven for our sins and rebellion against the holy creator of the universe. And yet the Lord provides for that. He sent his only son the perfect Passover lamb, so that through his life, death, and resurrection, we can be spared from the flood of God's wrath. And so may the Lord help us to not just remember this wonderful gospel, but, but to believe it and to then faithfully share it because we know it has the power to forgive and to save all who repent and believe. And if you do not know this Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, my prayer is you would repent and believe and that you would know and remember the grace and power of God in your own life.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you. It is indeed a blessing to gather around your word. Lord, thank you for this wonderful reminder of your might, your power, of your grace. Lord, there's no heart you cannot break. There is no soul you cannot save. And so we ask now, would you, Father, work mightily in the hearts of everyone present, that those who know you, Lord, that our love and for you would just increase, our desire to honor you would grow. But then, Lord, if there's any here who may not know you, we pray, would today be salvation for them, that they might know the power of the gospel in an intimate and mighty way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.